Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome back. Today we conclude episode 96 where Catherine, Sam, Greta, and Tom are discussing the text, In the Age of the Smart Machine, The Future of Work and Power by Shoshana Zuboff, published in 1988 by Basic Books. In part two, we will carry forward Zuboff's findings from the early 1980s to various episodes of information technology integration over the past several decades. If you missed part one or to get the text, they are available at our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We now rejoin the conversation. Well, uh, so as we said, Zuboff uh, wrote this book in 1987, 1988, and a lot has happened. I mean, it's 35 years now that we've been in this environment where information technology is now kind of dominated our lives. And, and the natural question becomes, which uh, which aspects of Zuboff uh, came true and what's been the impact? Reading the book, I was reminded of initiatives, multiple initiatives, but I'll just highlight one, where, you know, in a very large organization that I've, uh, that I worked in, we tried to bring in some sort of a new system, just like the organizations that Zuboff covered, to try ostensibly to make things better and take advantage of the tremendous amount of information that we were contending with, only to see it scuttled in fairly short order. The examples I'm going to give, I'll actually give two examples that happened back to back. One of them is probably familiar to most of you. It's Y2K. And so we had a, a major effort to try to ensure that the Y2K bug, which was software systems that used the two-digit year, that when we rolled over to 2000, we would see all sorts of problems, uh, things break and all that sort of thing. And then the other one was the introduction of uh, the balanced scorecard. So these two episodes sort of happened back to back. You're in a large organization, generates a lot of information. You have a massive array of software systems that had cropped up over time. And I'd say that this was not uncommon among large organizations at the time, because when people were developing systems, they tended to be single function. So we buy a pay system. We buy a human resource management system. We buy a uh, quality control system. The technology didn't necessarily allow for large integrated network systems to control the entire enterprise, so it was single function. So then in Y2K, as Y2K comes in and everybody's panicking because they're fearing the worst of systems going bonkers, the moment that the calendar flips over to January of uh, 2000, there was a concerted managerial effort to ensure that all software was updated to a four-digit year system. And so that was carefully managed from start to finish. There were very, very clear metrics, a clear deadline, resources allocated, all of that sort of thing. The And it turned out that the whole Y2K thing did not, you know, it was essentially corrected before it went on. The, the success of Y2K was a catastrophic success in that it created or enhanced a lot of cynicism towards 
managerial efforts to institute larger scale information systems. Reason being the belief that the whole Y2K was nothing more than a ploy for contractors to get a whole bunch of money to fix their software systems that weren't broken in the first place. On the heels of that was the balanced scorecard, which was going to be an effort to try to get all of these information systems to help senior leaders make better decisions. The idea that this uh, balanced scorecard was going to become intrusive in that it was going to require everybody to figure out how to create quantitative metrics for everything that everybody did so that we could have data entry into a system that allowed for performance you know, the performance of the organization to be measured, every step of the way, there was active resistance against it and very little that managers could do about it. So what I took away from this is that here it is 12 years after Zuboff writes her book, we'd already built up a core that treats any mention of automation as a threat to which there's just been an undertone, I think, that I've seen in the 22 some odd years since of cynicism towards the automation of everything. It seems like, whereas in the 80s, we might have been close to being able to build informated organizations, I think it it gets really, really hard now to see the extent to which that we have apprehension or concern or whatever over the automation of processes. that's, That's one take anyway. And listening to you, you know, the question is, why is that apprehension or resistance there? And I think since the 80s, we've also seen how a lot of technological changes in organizations took power and autonomy away from workers, put them under increased scrutiny and observation, and reduced the quality of the work lives of the workers that are, in the end, producing the value. And then thinking about the distribution of value, workers have less and less profited from these changes, with shareholders being the big winners. Putting that in the context of globalization, it has created a very different environment than we were at the time. And I think for workers, it's very difficult to understand what cause and effect is, but they do experience the consequences. So the other part is new technologies are introduced all the time, But often as workers, it only asks us to do more work rather than less. Like, you know, the balanced scorecard, if you have to quantify, you know, what all your colleagues do with yourself doing numbers and you're like, well, you know, let me just do my job. Why do I have to put in all this admin? Like a lot of jobs turn into, you know, 60% admin, 40% content. And who is benefiting from that work that you have to do, but you actually were not hired to do? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, the uh, fears of micromanagement was a resonant theme during the balanced scorecard. The phrase 10,000 mile screwdriver was being used frequently in water cooler conversations. How is management going to interfere with what I'm doing based on their additional knowledge that heretofore was impossible? You know, this knowledge that uh, about what I'm doing in the front and I can't quantify what I do anyway. It's very rare that that approach has positive outcomes ultimately for productivity or anything else. So I'm just even thinking back to our Dalton episode where we saw the introduction of levels of bureaucracy 
and administration, basically, in an attempt to control the labour and also to increase productivity just didn't work either. Things that are meant to set us free don't always, and people respond to that. They need their buy-in to the process. They need to see how it's going to impact their lives and how it's going to make their lives and their working lives better to buy into it. You know, in a way, this book as well is kind of a, a classic of change management, just seeing it from a, a practitioner's perspective. There's a lot of useful kind of case studies about how to get it wrong. Anybody embarking on digital transformation projects, which a lot of companies are doing at the moment, is definitely worth a read. You know, and you do get that sense as well from the workers, which probably you experienced, Tom, as well as lots of errors, you know, that makes people feel uncomfortable about their work. If they take pride in their work, as most people do, a sense of malaise, people feel rootless, like they're floating in space. And describing themselves as being lost behind a screen as well. You know, and you get the usual kind of rear guard action from change management always. Those themes are there of indifference. And then you get on the other extreme, you get the enthusiasts, but kind of a, a resignation. And um, I think Zuboff says in the book, never underestimate the magnetizing of the past and the forces of inertia upon which it thrives. You know, people are always going to revert back to what they know and what they feel comfortable with. And there is a part of the book where she talks about uh, one of her case studies, which was a daily newspaper, I think, that was computerizing typesetting. And I worked in newspapers at the start of my career, and we inherited a, a team of people who had worked at printing presses in London, actually, and, you know, loved the smell of ink, basically. And now they were sat in front of big Macs, doing Quark Express, which probably doesn't even exist as a program anymore and having having to adopt to it. And, you know, there was a lot of cynicism. And it was interesting, actually, how they replicated in the office. The production manager replicated how people used to sit in his office when he was working more directly at the printworks and took a lot of pleasure in chatting to people and having a lot of banter, I think, to, to keep things going, because there was a lot of loss, sense of loss there. And I think Zuboff talks about that in the book as well. It's more the, the physical loss. When it when the production manager was working in the print works, it wasn't more necessarily of a physical job. But I think change does result in physical loss that people feel. And like we saw in that clerical work case study as well, it can actually manifest itself physically in people's behavior as well. I think the printing press example brings up something else that is, is sort of outside of what Zuboff was concentrating on, but I think is relevant and related. And that's also the way in which we consume the products. Because I think about growing up when the newspaper was delivered to the door, and now that whole medium is giving away to consuming uh, news via online means. And the industry is essentially pushing everybody to it because you compare the costs of printing and distributing papers versus just simply posting something online and having it immediately consumable. You know, obviously the, the costs drive you a certain way, but that also has an impact on the way that we consume the news. And I think also probably an extent to which those who are doing the work recognize the value of what it is that they're producing. So if you if you're a, a probably working printing presses, you're you're enhanced by the idea of or the image of the father or the mother with the newspaper in front of them at the breakfast table, which has a different, I, I suspect a different feel to 
knowing that, you know, basically people are just with their smartphones, just scrolling through stuff, looking for TikTok videos or whatever. And news is not something that they consume as they did in the past. Yes, I think, I mean, Subov talks about this idea of the textualization of work and of the organizational environment, right? To, to describe how things that people used to feel and see and touch and smell will kind of move to this electronic text where you have a lot less possibilities. And I mean, on top of the example you were giving, Tom, I, I was also thinking about all this work on how social media is impacting how we have to present our work and who is viewing our work and who can criticize our work and potentially have all these different audiences that have an impact in how we are doing what we're doing, even if we don't really see them, but we are seeing, right? Because we have to be kind of posting and showing and curating um, how we represent what it is that we're doing. Well, well you want to talk about uh, something that, uh, you know, scientific management in monetizing social media content. Um, that's, that's a whole topic in itself. Well, I was thinking about some current developments in, you know, where we see that the technologies that are adopted by organizations now are necessarily... So in the time this book was published, you know, you adopt the computer and it's used in your organization. The boundary of the organization stays relatively intact. What we see now with, for instance, the adoption of platforms with facilitated by the internet is that organizations become way more connected. So for instance, one study I have is on the adoption of digital labor platforms by firms. And this, I find like, you know, the framework of Zuboff, I can easily apply to my data set where I really see like where a platform gets adopted really matters for what affordances uh, people see in it. And so when it's a traditional HR procurement department that has always been in charge of hiring external people and freelancers, they only see the automating potential, like, you know, a lot of the manual work that they had to do, they can now automate it with the platform and they can just bring on board their own freelancers and use it as kind of an information system to automate. But when it's adopted decentralized, for instance, by a marketing team, they really see the information potential in the sense that, you know, some of these managers just hire a freelancer to train their internal team. And they say, you know, why take the hassle of asking for funding and organizing an event? Why not just have a one-hour session with an expert to train the team on, you know, the latest developments? So they really see like new affordances and ways to organize the work with external people. It really helps them to do the work differently and increase productivity. So that's what I found like, you know, a really nice, a nice example of, you know, how we can apply the framework. And related to, you know, the discussion that Zuboff has started about technology and power, another thing about current technologies that I would like to highlight is that they are often built on top of other technologies now. And for instance, when you think about cloud, I think that's a brilliant example where a lot of the technologies nowadays are cloud-based. So they're built on top of the technology provided by cloud owners like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, Microsoft Azure. And so these technologies are being implemented and are being developed, but their functionality is dependent on the core technology. 
And where people assume that these technologies are stable, in our study that we are doing, we see that they're continuously changing. And so the functioning of one technology is not dependent on how well it's being built or used, but it's like the changes made in the underlying technology that also have an effect. And so where Zuboff really talks about power dynamics within organizations between workers and management, what we now see is we really have to start to think about how power is distributed in ecosystems and how these cloud owners have a lot to say about the way technology is being developed in these small tech startups, the organization of work, how they experience these disruptions, as well as how it's being adopted. That's an excellent point. On the one hand, it certainly uh, exposes a lot of risk because not only is it that these uh, platforms are constantly changing, but now in today's uh, information assurance environment and uh, cyber attacks and things like that, there's a lot of vulnerability associated with it. So the general question about, you know, not just thinking about the impacts of information technologies about our the meaning of work, but also the stability of the work or the reliability of the systems to be able to give you the information that you need and also to be able to protect information from outside scrutiny. You know, the lack of transparency, it's gone beyond uh, just concerns about management surveillance. It's also about the survivability of an organization, trust in the environment to allow you to continue and not be stuck with a, you know, hit with a ransomware attack or something like that. What I do wonder is what's the tipping point on this where for all of the good things we want out of an informating environment, you know, are the bad things, are the threats, are the the challenges of using information technology going to reach a point where we've got to think about something else? (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. I don't see us going back to the pre-internet age, but what would be the alternative? How do we protect ourselves better and to leverage what these technologies are supposed to give us? I think people crave going back to some of these things, not that it's necessarily mainstream, but we've seen an increase in people buying vinyl records. There's quite a premium on printed documents, books, you know, some subscriptions to printed magazines have held up quite well. You know, I don't think things will go back, but I think the appetite for more tangible physical things will probably change or perhaps even grow. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I think, you know, we see the loss of that in work as well. Zuboff describes that, doesn't she? How, you know, that craving of feeling the loss of physical work. People want a physical experience. Maybe augmented reality is trying to be the next step between those things for us. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I see two reactions to that. One is I think there are aspects of work that we will never be able to reduce to technology. So things that have to do with values or judgments or even this knowledge that cannot be codified and automated and this idea that we still need to be able to be there, you know, the relational, if we think about people that study expertise in occupations and professions, these ideas of like relational expertise and how important it is to be able to actually get things done. So that's one reaction that I would have. The other is that contrary to what, you know, the world and the possibilities that Zubov is is painting, the technologies that I see now as closer, at least to my work or to the settings that I've studied, 
they provide a lot more information and they automate certain things. But the way we value these technologies is also because they allow us to control many aspects of them, right? Like we, you know, you have algorithms that you, they kind of take a little bit of you as well and they become very personalized. So in that sense, I don't know. And even, you know, the, the example you were mentioning, Catherine, of augmented reality, like I don't know if that's the way that these technologies are developing, then maybe they, you know, as long as they give us as much as what they take, <laughs> I guess would be, they won't be as problematic. I don't know. And, and that's how she kind of concludes the book ultimately, isn't it? It's quite a positive view of how things might be that automation has fantastic possibilities for imagination and creativity. It also could set us free by relieving us of the mundane tasks that could be automated. Um, but ultimately, I think if Shoshana Zuboff was here now, she would be saying it's all gone horribly wrong. Help. <laughs> well, I suppose you had to be a little bit of an optimist in the late 80s. At the time, with the advent, you know, it's it's sort of like during the PC revolution, where we were starting to see desktop computers being mass produced and available and put on people's desks. And you had the advent of the internet. At the time, the internet was a known thing, but it was still kind of limited to very specific uh, circles, government and academia. You'd almost want to be optimistic at that particular point, because even with the burgeoning problems, there was probably still a sense of we could correct it in the next few years as this happens, if we think about it. I would imagine that if uh, she had taken a more, if her conclusions were a little bit darker, a little bit more cynical or whatever, that uh, the book would not have had the same level of impact because it's like, oh, you're just a naysayer. And there were definitely a lot of naysayers at the time. No question about it. There was a lot of press that was treating this oncoming revolution as a real, the end of society kind of stuff. I think she got a lot of um, her future kind of predictions quite right. Like there's fantastic descriptions in the books, uh, in the book of things like Computer conferencing is a communications medium that offers an alternative to the constraints of geography and time associated with face-to-face -face meetings or telephone conversations while avoiding the formality of written correspondence. You know, these things actually came true. And another thing she describes, which really, I guess, is what an app, what we now know is an app is, for example, when a customer uses an automated teller machine, the data entry function is accomplished automatically without clerical input. A hospital computer may send bills directly to the health insurer's company. You know, that these are things that happened. But um, I did have a little chuckle to myself when I heard about the predictions here about, you know, how many people would be using computers. The Congressional Office of Technology Assessment has predicted that there will be at least one computer terminal for every two or three office workers by 1990. Gosh, how things have changed. Exactly. And how many devices, you know? But uh, can you imagine reading that in 1988, you know, about how the computer conferencing, when we do so much online now, like, look at what we're doing right now, even how that has changed since the start of the podcast. It's amazing, really. And she was, she was, she was amazingly accurate about a lot of these things. And also against the, the feelings, right, that, that come with these changes. I, when I was reading a lot of the quotes that she provides from the workers and the sense of loss and feeling disconnected and not being able to touch or feel things, but also just missing out on like the social cues and the, the, all the little things that are context dependent that enable them to do a good job. 
I don't know. It, it, I could have. I felt like I could have been reading the same things about you know those first months in the pandemic of people working on Zoom and suddenly realizing that they're missing out on all these things, and then these even new technologies that we saw become so popular as well of like kind of trying to mimic this informal interaction to get a sense of yeah what we're missing from being at the workplace. I think here the connection with the Lupton episode is perhaps a nice one where we also had these two workfloors that were being studied and one where the workfloor was structured in a way that people could not communicate with each other. And the other one where they had to communicate because they shared the technologies and that actually people enjoyed it much more working there. This connects a little bit to the way technologies are developed nowadays, where they're individualized and personalized and in a way allow you to connect with a lot of people, but using the technology doesn't necessitate it. Um, because it's personalized. So, you know, having four computers instead of having to share one, you know, you're able to connect with us on Zoom now and do the podcast, which is great. <laughs> We're very happy to have you here. But perhaps your connection with the person working in the office next to you is less because... We're so used to connecting with people through the computer. So you don't even notice that this colleague is in their office and you could go for a coffee. So that's that's one thing about the nature of technologies that are entering the workplace. And the other one is that the technologies nowadays are kind of made that they are continuously changing. That You can adapt them. And sometimes these changes are not even your choice. They're imposed, like when you have to update your computer because, uh, you know, a developer decided to have like a new release of a set of updates and suddenly your entire work process is being disrupted. And when you think about software development in cloud, this happens all the time. When they make a change in the core architecture, sometimes it, it takes three weeks to do bug fixing. And their entire work plan for that month is out of the window. Uh, so in terms of, you know, what do we want? What are requirements for us to enjoy the work? I think it's very simple, humane things. Some sense of predictability, some sense of knowing what you have to do, feeling confident you can accomplish it, and having some nice people to have lunch and coffee with. And if you look at the way technologies are entering the workplace, all these needs are not met. So coming back to your question, Tom, like, you know, it, where are we going? One of the key arguments of Zubov's book is technologies are not neutral. And we need to think that, about the values that go into their design and how, how they shape how we experience the work. So I would really embrace that message and also for developers of the technologies that we are em embracing, for instance, you know, think about like this uh, augmented reality, like, you know, I'm quite skeptical, but, you know, if this is the future, but think about, you know, what values go in it. Is there a way to bring those technologies closer to the needs of the people actually doing the work? I think it, uh, it also speaks to what is it that's driving some of the adoption of technologies? It's competitive, competitive pressures from above as opposed to pressures from within. One of her managerial recommendations of social system development, just something that seems to be on the outside, even for those managers that are conscientious and want to do right by their people, they run up against the pressures that more a greater advantage of the information available or the information to be generated. Those pressures just simply outweigh 
So it's it. I think it really takes a, a real transformation, and it almost, to me, takes continued clamoring. Like we've been talking in the past few uh, episodes about the fallout from COVID, about the Great Resignation and some other things. A, a lot of the discussion there has all been talking about taking care of the people and putting the people first in the organization. But is that translated into new managerial techniques or is this something where it's going to become a movement that peters out because ultimately competitive realities are what they were and we're just going to find ourselves post-pandemic where we were pre-pandemic? I don't know. Just to that a little bit, Tom, I found it fascinating in the book, in particularly in the history of work part, just to see some tales of old of some of the challenges or I guess some of the themes that are discussed ad nauseum in in the press at the moment in relation to work, themes such as quiet quitting or four-day weeks, hybrid working, remote working. And she had a couple of examples. Obviously, this was written in 1988, but I I found it quite enlightening that, you know, a lot of these concepts that we're grappling with now post-pandemic are as if they're absolutely new and they're not. So, In the book, she mentions about how Coopers, who were working in New Jersey, were famous for the four-day week. They never worked a four-day week. And uh, some emigrants from Staffordshire in England who had moved to New Jersey, who were potters, um, you may know Staffordshire is very well known for its potteries, worked in great bursts of activity, followed by layoff for several days. That was quite normal. In, I think it was the 1700s in Birmingham in England as well, every man, I think it was, that worked in those days had a weekday of leisure spent in the alehouse and it was called Saint Monday. And as well, she also discusses very briefly just about American mill workers who were outraged at being expected to show up at work at a fixed hour, something that is possibly a norm now, you know, for the vast majority of workers. But actually turning up to work at an appointed hour was a completely new concept back then. And, you know, we talk about these things now as if they just arrived, but they didn't. And there actually is an amazing quote in the book. We've all heard recently about quiet quitting. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but everywhere I look, everybody's talking about quiet quitting. And in it, she describes um, as early as 1757, Josiah Tucker wrote in a pamphlet entitled Instructions for Travellers, a description of domestic weavers transplanted to factory life. He provides one of the earlier descriptions of what was to become a central strategy for the industrial worker, withholding effort. I think that is quiet quitting, right? They think it is no crime to get as much wages and to do as little for it as they possibly can, to lie and cheat and do any other bad thing, provided it is only against their master, whom they look upon as their common enemy, with whom no faith is to be kept. So quiet quitting was not invented in 2022, but in 1757. Yes, indeed. And I, I, I also remembered the, 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 the guy who made 10 trips to the Grog House. I... <laughs> So, I'm not sure information technology is uh, the answer to all the these way. problems, but yeah. Yeah. I, so, same challenges, guess, different tools as human beings yeah, at the end of the uh, day. You know, people want, organizations need people to do the work. Workers need the work. You know, they they both need each other in, in that ecosystem. It's always going to be a constant battle, I think, depending on the circumstance, you know, the industry, the type of work. There's so many variables involved in, in how successful or not that can be. Well, I think that uh, that that brings up a question in my mind that I was sort of thinking through as we're having this conversation is, you know, to what extent 
is a lot of the discussion that we're having really focused on, you know, white collar and what information technology does for those who are in a position to manage and do information. One of the groups of workers who really took it hard in the pandemic and have continued to take it hard are the blue collar. Information, you know, Zuboff's uh, case studies of, you know, the frontline blue collar workers is still very telling about how information technology really ultimately did not provide them with much of an advantage. And the more that we keep talking about, you know, how the continued use of information technology changes work so much, there's still ultimately that frontline force that still has to go out into the field, pick apples, drive tractors, erect buildings. I mean, is the information technology just simply making it more difficult or Well, what you could bring in here is why are technologies introduced and what are they supposed to optimize for? And what you see, and that that is in the book and that is in, in you know a lot of developments now, is that it's all, all about automating increasing production within the current regime, within the current lines of authority, the managerial structures. And people think that you can increase productivity by A, controlling the worker more or automating parts of the process. But what if you would have an informating mentality and you would optimize for that and you would empower people like, you know, if you can choose what to automate in your context and you have like this more time, what would you do? And instead of, you know, increasing production, you know, from 30 to 40% by using that informating potential and triggering innovation, you can double or triple it. That's a whole different mentality. But what it means, there is more risk and you have to let go of that tendency of managers of wanting to control everything. And I think that's very scary. And this is also, you know, the, the final, if, if you look the preface, like the final sentence of it, the data presented here reflect not only the emergence of new patterns in the workplace, but also the concrete ways in which old patterns and assumptions assert themselves and can dull the impact of change. And I think that's very true. We, we see it all around us. Yeah, perhaps I'm thinking of the, the explosion of the craft brewing industry in the United States. Because there, you know, what you're talking about there was a lot of uh, people who were very, very interested in the craft and were passionate about the artistry of the craft. And I think that's one of the things that separates them from perhaps other industries we may be talking about. But there, all of the organizations are ultimately small. And there, the size of the organization, I think, made it easier for them to operate even though they're under the same competitive pressures and as trying to get a product to market in a reliable fashion and, and there's a lot of conglomerations that are going over them, they can still retain a lot of their family character is how I understand it. I mean, my information is a little bit dated. Th those types of small operations have managed to retain a social structure that's a, perhaps a little bit more of what we may be thinking about, and they're still producing things, and they're still using technology to their greatest extent because they've remained small. Large organizations, I think uh, it's, it's got to be a much harder thing. And I'm thinking about like what Zuboff wrote, like, was it Chandler who said like, you know, before 1890, you know, there was no manager, like the role of the manager didn't exist. 
thinking about, you know, heterarchies or, you know, small enterprises where a lot of people integrate managerial and ex- executing roles where you don't need that much management to continue the operations. And people are skeptical to what extent you can use that organizational forum and scale it up. But is there a way, if if you have to have a bigger firm, to still retain that kind of small group craft culture where you have perhaps less division of labor? A lot of technology companies themselves are like that, aren't they? Well, they try to create that kind of culture in a way. I know they're not physically making a craft as artisans, but they have a flat hierarchical structure, a lot of them. And they like to create that sense of kind of family, smallness, being agile and being able to change things and, and adapt things quite quickly. Yeah, there are also uh, organizations that are almost designed to come and go. Once, once uh, Maybe you have an app that uh, that is sustainable or whatever, but a lot of these companies, they start out almost expecting that they're either going to cease to exist or they're going to sell their main product to some larger entity and then they're going to go off and start the next, you know, be the next, uh, be the next startup. That sort of assumption going in might drive you to behave differently than a larger firm. Yeah, it is interesting to think about because the, when we're talking about really large organizations that have now embedded a particular view of how it integrates information technology, it's almost uh, so difficult to try to get them to rethink or re-engineer from scratch. It's almost like, uh, you know, the the disruptive organizations would seem to have an have an advantage in that regard, I guess. Yeah, my thinking is along the same lines. Like firms where divisions of labor are more fluid or less well-defined might have an easier go at adopting new technologies and, and accept the consequences of. Catherine, you, you brought up like, you know, these boundaries between occupations and where do tasks fall under one occupation versus the other. Like with technology, that all changes. <laughs> like there are values and assumptions in them about how they are being used and uh, who uses them that will change things inside the firm. When these things are more fluid or negotiable or less defined, you might be more okay with that. But when a firm scales up, you have more division of labor that defines the knowledge you have, the status you enjoy, the salary you're getting, and perhaps the disruptive impact of a technology inside the firm is bigger and leading to more resistance of the people that won't benefit. It's almost like, uh, you know, when the, if an organization does scale up, how do you resist the natural temptation to impose or in, inculcate, like basically undo the informating that you have established as a, as a smaller or a younger organization? Plenty of literature out there uses terms like ossification or bureaucratization that just sort of forms when an organization grows from its initial size, despite its efforts to do otherwise. And uh, I don't know if uh, if uh, Zuboff had an example of that. I don't think she did. But it's it would seem like that that would be a particular challenge, that even if you get an informating organization is how to is how to resist the temptation to undo it as you get larger or as perhaps you get hit by bad episodes or crises or other experiences that then naturally cause the organization to want to tighten the screws on certain things, which then starts this slippery slope down to asserting managerial authority or you know surveillance and all that sort of thing. 
Now that we've an- uh, asked a whole bunch of questions we can't possibly answer, perhaps we can <laughs> perhaps we can lend towards uh, some takeaways. I wonder, you know, what has Zuboff's impact been? Because obviously in recent years in particular, she's gained a more mainstream profile outside of academia. I was just looking at um, Gideon Kunda's engineering culture and expected to see her name in, in the back of it and it's not referenced in it. And I just wonder what her impact has been. I think it has been quite, quite substantial in the studies of technology adoption. Yes, and you know this distinction between automating and informating technologies has become mainstream, I would say. I knew this distinction and I have used it in my writing, but going back to the book and really looking into what she means by it and then how she extends it into developing informating organizations takes it way further. So uh, I, w- I would definitely encourage everybody to revisit and read her book as it really helps you to think in different ways about how technologies are adopted, can be adopted, and what the risks are that are involved in each of them. I'd say mine would be the same as well as the humanizing side of information technology. That's the critical factor in, in where we go next with it as well, whether it's augmented reality or however it presents itself. Yes. And these might, I mean, we're doing our takeaways and this might be my bias being an organizational ethnographer, but for me, what was so valuable about this book and something that I will definitely use as an example when I teach about this even is you can talk about these big challenges and these big changes in organizations, but really what allows you to understand what people are losing and what people could potentially gain is this attention on what she talks about, the lived experience, right? So what people feel, what they think, how they understand what's happening and what they're doing and how that changes their relationship with their own work. So for me, that was the most kind of valuable takeaway that I got from this book. And uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just add that uh, there's, there's also the question in my mind is how do you prevent dehumanization in the first place? You know, there's, there's the how do you respond to it side, but there's also if technology is going to continuously change, can we get into the cycle of putting the person first and foremost as opposed to an afterthought whenever we do these cycles? What is it that we really want out of our informating? What is it that managers need and what is it that the frontline worker needs? What is it that they desire and how to get managers to be a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and vulnerability, I think is another takeaway. I mean, what is it that managers get concerned about with their authority? Because on a surface, it just seems to be unnecessary. Like a lot of the things, a lot of the problems that Zuboff showed in her case studies just seem to be unnecessary and preventable at some level. And I don't know that I have an answer to how you prevent, but at least to have the discussion about it, to shed light on where the organization could take technological change the wrong way would just seem to be a central message, something that should be put up front and discussed. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. 
We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you when we present another classic reading on organization theory or management science here on Talking About Organizations.